Hi, everyone, and welcome to the National Governors Association's brand new innovation podcast series, Ahead of the Curve. I'm Brian Sandoval, Governor of Nevada and Chair of the National Governors Association. Through my NGA Chair's initiative, Ahead of the Curve, Innovation Governors, I've been helping my fellow governors prepare their states for the ongoing technology disruption in the energy and transportation sectors. And that is what we are here to discuss as part of the NGA Innovation podcast series. This episode focuses on updates to our communications networks that are essential to allowing for a more connected future. We will feature a discussion with some of the principal thought leaders in this area. You can find more information about this podcast and my initiative on our website, njahead.org. I'll now hand the mic over to Sue Gander at the National Governors Association to begin our conversation. Thank you, Governor Sandoval, and welcome listeners to Ahead of the Curve. Today's topic is communications technology and a safer, connected road ahead. We have with us today two speakers who are going to demystify the worlds of communications and autonomous and connected vehicles. Beth Cooley, who is Senior Director of State Legislative Affairs for CTIA, will talk to us about the next generation of communications infrastructure, and in particular, the importance of the rollout of a new 5G network. Then we'll be joined by Dan Galves, Senior Vice President and Chief Communications Officer from Mobileye, an Intel company. He will explain how new transportation technologies will help make for improved safety and mobility and how communications networks will play a key part in that. Let's start with you, Beth. Can you tell us a little bit more about CTIA and its members? Absolutely. Thank you, Sue, for having us. CTIA represents the U.S. wireless communications industry, From carriers and equipment manufacturers to mobile app developers and content creators, we bring together a dynamic group of companies that enable consumers to lead a 21st century connected life. We advocate at federal, state, and local levels for legislative and regulatory policies that foster the continued innovation, investment, and increasing economic impact of America's wireless industry. Let's go right to the basics. We keep hearing about 4G, 5G, broadband, I'm sure I'm forgetting some other terms. Can you help us understand what these terms mean and what is the technology all about? So let's start with broadband. Broadband is a common term that refers to data communication services of a particular bandwidth sufficient to carry communications like voice, video, or data. The term broadband covers a range of different speeds depending on the transmission or the way that the service is delivered such as cable, digital subscriber line, or DSL, fiber optic, or wireless. Now, 3G, or third generation, that brought us the first true wireless data in the 2000s, giving consumers access to the Internet everywhere that they go. 4G, or fourth generation, got us that wireless broadband data and video and gave rise to the app economy. Think about it, the app economy didn't even exist 10 years ago. Now, today, 99.6% of Americans have access to 4G LTE networks. And that's thanks in part to over $200 billion invested since 2010 by the wireless operators, large and small. Now, fifth generation, which I understand we're going to talk more about, is really an exciting time. 5G, or fifth generation, will be transformative, making our lives better, our communities safer, and our nation more prosperous. 5G will connect 100 times more devices, be 100 times faster, and five times as responsive as today's 4G networks. 
So you mentioned 5G, and I do want to dig deeper into that technology. And can you help relate that to the topics that we've been focused on for the Ahead of the Curve initiative, specifically transportation and energy? How does 5G help in in those two sectors? Holistically, it is estimated that 5G is going to bring about 3 million new jobs nationally and provide a $500 billion boost to the U.S. GDP. This is a really exciting time for economic development. But in terms of the energy sector, what we have seen in studies is that smart grid adoption, for example, in the energy world, enabled by wireless connectivity, could create $1.8 trillion in additional revenue to the U.S. economy and could save the average consumer hundreds of dollars a day. And this is actually happening today. For instance, Sacramento, California, they leverage wireless technology to reduce energy outages by 37 percent from 2009 to 2013. And additionally, in Florida, Florida Power and Light customers are now saving an average of $191 per year on their electricity bills thanks to wirelessly connected smart meters. So that's the energy side. On the transportation side, recent studies done by Deloitte have found that wireless-powered self-driving cars could reduce emissions by 40 to 90 percent, travel times by nearly 40 percent, and then delays could be reduced by 20 percent. But I think more importantly, what these wireless-powered self-driving cars can do is actually save lives. Deloitte found that over 21,000 lives could be saved per year with these self-driving cars. Thanks, Beth. That sounds like a lot of great benefits that can be coming from this new communications network. Things like resiliency and cost savings, jobs, um, emissions benefits, convenience and and safety. And we're going to talk about the safety part with, with Dan a little bit later in the show. The thing that jumps to my mind when I hear all this is it sounds like a lot more data is being produced. Can you give us a sense of How much data are we talking about and how many devices do you envision in this new future? You know, wireless data just continues to explode. In 2016, wireless traffic totaled 13.72 trillion megabytes. Now, what does that mean to the average person? That's the equivalent of 1.58 million years of streaming HD video. That is a lot of Netflix binging. (laughs) Even more, to put a more finer point on that, over the past two years, data use has increased 238%. And this is only going to increase, particularly in the wireless world, as you've seen the proliferation of unlimited wireless plans. That is absolutely going to add to it. Now, in terms of connected devices, and as we get into the world of IoT or the Internet of Things, Ericsson has recently forecast that over 30 billion connected devices will be in place by 2023. And that's including around $20 billion related to IoT or the Internet of Things. Sorry, I heard a lot of billions in there. So definitely big, big numbers or even trillion. That's, like yeah, whispers, billion with well. a B and t- trillion with a D. Yeah. So a little bit earlier, you mentioned how there's really good coverage, extensive coverage around the 4G LTE network. But as we know, and we've heard from, from governors and from, from policymakers at all levels, there's a concern about a lack of access for, in particular, some of the rural areas of America, as well as some of the disadvantaged communities that either don't have the access to different types of broadband, or maybe they can't afford some of the high-speed connectivity. Can you share a little bit more about the challenges of you know getting to 100% of the population? What are some of the solutions that you've seen for helping to address this gap? And 
what do you think it might mean for the transportation-related technologies that we're looking to deploy down the road? So, you know, as I mentioned, you know, the first 4G networks were rolled out in the U.S. in 2010. And thanks to over $200 billion in wireless investment, wireless networks connect Americans wherever they are, at home, at work, or on the road, again, covering about 96% of rural road miles. And we continue to make progress. Over the past five years, more than 1.5 million more rural Americans have become covered by mobile broadband. But candidly, more needs to be done. You know, providing for regulatory certainty and streamlined processes for deploying wireless infrastructure is paramount. And there's a few things, particularly those governors listening to this podcast, can do. You're probably familiar with those 200-foot-tall cell towers or macro towers that you see along the highway. Now, those are and will continue to be paramount for providing coverage and wireless broadband to rural areas. Over a dozen states have enacted legislation that would streamline the process for deploying those macro sites. Again, if you're a governor listening to this podcast, this is an effort that you could spearhead in your state that would truly provide additional wireless coverage and wireless broadband to your rural areas. Additionally, there are some notable activities at the federal level. Currently at the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, there is an ongoing auction called the Connect America Fund Phase 2, or CAF 2. Now, this auction has earmarked $2 billion over 10 years to support new broadband infrastructure in rural areas. The auction will award funding to help cover the cost of deploying broadband in rural areas. Additionally, at the federal level in Congress, important legislation has been recently introduced called the Airwaves Act. And the Airwaves Act is related to spectrum that will be auctioned off to wireless providers. But an important aspect of the Airwaves Act is something called a rural dividend, which will set aside 10% of proceeds from future spectrum auctions to deploy wireless in those unserved, often rural areas. For example, if this rural dividend had been in place for the past two auctions, over $6 billion would have been available for wireless deployment in unserved areas. That's great to hear about some of the ways that governors can take action and also some of the things that are bubbling up at the federal level. Are there any other actions you think states uh, might want to consider or other things that you see taking place at the state level? Absolutely. So, you know, we talked about demand for wireless data. And in order to accommodate today's demand, it's important to talk about wireless networks. And these wireless networks will be imperative as we get to 5G as well. You know, again, we talked about those 200-foot-tall macro towers, which will continue to be important. But for us to get to 5G, we are starting to deploy next-generation networks, generally called small cells. They are about the size of a pizza box, and they complement those existing cell towers. They're usually installed on utility poles, streetlights, sides of the building, and they'll be able to handle today's congestions on 4G networks and get ready for 5G. Now, the issue that, uh, or the, the opportunity that we've had in the States is that oftentimes the rules that are on the books they only address those 200-foot-tall macro towers and not the small cells. So we have been working with our industry, state and local partners, and governors throughout the states. And over the past two years, 20 state legislatures have enacted legislation that would streamline and expedite the deployment of these small cells. Now, each bill is different. Every state is different. Every local need is different. So we're proud of that. And, you know, this has really been an endeavor, a coalition of getting these next generation networks out there. And we're really appreciative of our partners and particularly the governors in the states who have worked with us. Now, that's one angle. An additional angle that we've been seeing 
are public-private partnerships, which have been really exciting. You know, unaffiliated with CTIA, a, a private company, for example, is teaming up with the Colorado Department of Transportation to test something that they call smart pavement. And they're putting it on parts of highways that have seen higher events of accidents. The pavement consists of interlocking concrete slabs embedded with an array of sensors, processors, and antennas. And if a vehicle leaves the roadway, those weight sensors will obviously sense that, and then they can immediately alert personnel to be dispatched right away, emergency personnel. So those are just some examples, whether it's the state legislature and statewide policy or public-private partnerships where, you know, we're really seeing the states are taking the lead. Excellent. Great. And and it's exciting to hear, talked about smart grids earlier, and now you've you've mentioned smart roads and, and hearing about how the technologies really do play a part in safety and advancing our economy. We're going to just wrap up with you, Beth, and and I just wanted to hear if you had any final thoughts about this topic and how we can work together with the industry and with other partners in adding momentum to what's already happening or removing barriers to the process. Absolutely. And I want to thank you again, Sue, for having me here, because this is a really exciting time for the wireless industry and our country. You know, the U.S. won the race to 4G, but other countries are on our heels to win the race to 5G. A recent report that was published found that the U.S. is actually in third place behind China and South Korea in preparing for 5G. If that doesn't change, the U.S. economy will suffer. This is particularly due to spectrum policy and the ability to deploy next-generation wireless networks. But the good news is that we have the tools to win the race to 5G. By working with the FCC, Congress, and the states— and implementing thoughtful, forward-looking, innovative policy, we can win that race. Excellent. Thank you, Beth. Dan, let's turn to you now and explore how communications developments that we just heard about are related to advancements in connected and autonomous vehicles. I'd like to start by asking you a little bit more about Mobileye by Intel. Can you let us know a little bit more about what that company does and how it's working on our new connected future? So Mobilize, a company um, that's based in Israel, uh, it was founded in 1999. Uh, we were acquired by Intel uh, as of August uh, 2017. We have a long history of creating technology that uh, really what it does is it's, it's software that takes raw data from a camera and turns it into usable information for a car to make decisions. So, you know, taking raw data and identifying, okay, here are all the vehicles around the car, here are the pedestrians, the lane markings, uh, the boundaries of the road, what do the traffic signs say? Our current business is, is primarily using this technology to identify dangerous situations that a car uh, may be experiencing and either warning the driver that there's something that they need to, to do or actively uh, deploying the brakes or the steering to, to avoid a dangerous situation. So that these technologies are called advanced driver assistance systems, and they're increasingly available on, on most vehicles that consumers can buy. Uh, we have about 27 million cars on the road with our technology, but that's really what we do is software to uh, translate camera data into usable information. Thanks, Dan. That's really fascinating. Can you tell us just a little bit more about the technology and, in particular, help us understand the difference between connected and autonomous vehicles? The products we have on the road today, like I said, are really intended to create an an additional 
safety mechanism to, to try to prevent accidents before they happen as opposed to, you know, what's called passive safety, which are like seatbelts and airbags that, you know, help to protect the occupants after a, a collision happens. And I, I think it's important um, that consumers, you know, understand that this technology, you know, is available today. They're not autonomous vehicles, but this technology to you know, identify and classify objects and, and shapes that are on the road, that becomes the building block on the path to fully autonomous vehicles. Connected vehicles are different. Vehicles that have a modem and a connection to the cloud, that's helpful in a lot of different areas. You know, you can end up getting, you know, updates to your navigational system. You could receive software updates that help to improve the vehicle, you know, as you own it. This is kind of what connected vehicles mean. So a vehicle being connected can help on the path to more autonomy, uh, more automation, um, but it's really useful in a lot of different areas. And the auto industry has been working on creating uh, these connections from the car to the cloud for quite a while now. Um, I think it's still in the early stages, but more and more uh, vehicles will be connected to the cloud in the future. Uh, now, there's also potential for vehicles to start to communicate with each other, um, but again, that, that's not really in existence yet. So my takeaway is that there's a spectrum of automation or autonomy there. And in fact, We've heard about this scale that the Society of Automotive Engineers has developed. It's a, it's a sixth level scale of vehicle automation ranging from level zero to level five. Can you explain where we are today on the scale and where are we headed and when? So first of all, there's, there's a couple benefits to, you know, what the technology that can be produced in vehicles today. And, and we kind of split it into safety and convenience. So safety meaning, uh, the vehicle is constantly monitoring the environment, and you know, let's say if you're following behind the vehicle, and you know, for some reason you're distracted, and the vehicle in front of you stops short, the ADAS, the Advanced Driver Assist System, can identify that dangerous situation, warn the driver, and if the driver still doesn't take action, then deploy the brakes itself. Also, you know, there are systems where if the, if the car senses that you're moving out of the lane, it can steer you back into the lane. So drowsiness or, or falling asleep or something like that, you know, very helpful to kind of add this added safety layer. And there, there's data out there that would say that cars with these types of systems are experience collisions at, you know, 30% or more lower rate. So very important. Convenience, meaning there's also systems going on the road. There usually called adaptive cruise control, where the car can speed up or slow down based on, uh, you know, a specific distance that you want to maintain between you and the car in front of you. So this can really help in, like, traffic jams to, you know, let the car start to take over some of the driving tasks. But the human or the driver always has to be in the loop, okay? So getting to these levels of autonomy where we are in the spectrum today is level one and level two, okay? Level one, meaning the car can either brake for you or steer for you, okay? So either one of these lane-keeping support systems where if you drift out of the lane, it can steer you back in, or a, an automatic emergency braking system where the, the vehicle can brake for you if there's a dangerous situation. 
So level one is either or. Level two is both. Okay, so when you think about systems like GM SuperCruise or Tesla Autopilot or Nissan ProPilot, these systems that in certain situations the car can take over the steering and the braking for you, that's considered level two. But again, the, the human always has to be paying attention because the car is not capable of completely taking over the driving. So that's level one and level two. Now, there's a huge step between level two and level three. And level three means, again, in certain situations, you know, typically on the highway, because the highway is, is in a lot of ways a, a simpler environment. You know, all the cars are going in the same direction. There's no traffic lights. There's no intersections. There's no pedestrians. So level three would mean, you know, in certain situations, usually on the highway, the car will tell you, hey, I've got this. I can take over all of the driving tasks for you, and you can read a book or do emails or something like that, and the car will let you know when you need to get back into the loop. Going from level two to level three is, is a really big jump because there's a huge responsibility to tell the, the driver that they can disengage. And that means you need to be confident that you can deal with every potential situation that can come up. And if you get into a situation that's maybe too complex for the system, you can't expect the driver to, to get back into the loop immediately. So you have to have multiple levels of redundancy to maintain safety uh, while that transition happens. And and that could be, you know, an, an extra system that, you know, can pull over to the side of the road and stop or just, you know, again, multiple levels of redundancy. So maybe instead of just cameras as the sensors that are monitoring the environment, uh, maybe you add radars or LIDARs as well to have an extra source of information. So that's level three, and, and that would be considered an automated vehicle. Then level four is a further step where it's not just in certain situations like on the highway, it would be in almost all situations. So in urban environments, rural environments, intersections, roundabouts, things like that, where the vehicle can take over the driving. And then level five would be a system where no driver is needed at all and it can drive in every single situation. It's not, it doesn't have to be in a, in a certain kind of mapped area, and you wouldn't even necessarily need a steering wheel or any sort of controls in the vehicle. So that, that's the spectrum. Like I said, at this point, the industry is really at level two. There are some uh, higher levels of automation that are in kind of test mode in certain areas. Given all that, do you have any kind of sense or projection of when those leaps are likely to be seen, you know, literally on on the road in terms of um, some of those level three, level four, and, and maybe even, you know, level five automobiles, you know, going beyond the test stage, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your sense of where the industry is headed and, and how quickly? In, in the automotive industry, technology, it, it takes a little while to get from kind of the you know, the prototype phase or the test phase to the production phase because you must validate an extremely high level of safety in order to really approve the vehicle to be used by normal consumers, okay? So I think that the, the technology and the science to create these higher-level automated vehicles is in place. 
but we're really in, in the, the validation phase. And, you know, and, and some parts of the system still need development work. I would say level three, there's different markets here, right? Level three is, is more of a consumer targeted product or, or a, a product that, you know, the vehicle would be owned by consumers. You know, the purpose would be that, you know, if you uh, could do other things during your commute, that would be valuable. I mean, I would love to, to leave work early, you know, by 45 minutes because I could do my final 45 minutes of emails in the car driving home. So, so that's really the value and, and the use case for level three. Mobileye and Intel have programs that will start to launch with our automaker partners um, starting in 2019 hmm. for level three. So, so we think level three is, is, is on the road, you know, in, in low volumes to begin with and, and probably fairly high, high end models um, because it's an expensive technology in 2019. Level four and level five are, are a little bit different um, because the, the real target use for these types of systems, at least in the beginning, is fleets of on-demand transportation as a service vehicles, right? So think unmanned vehicles uh, that can be uh, ordered you know, through your phone, you know, similar to an Uber or Lyft type of service, uh, but just vehicles driving autonomously. So the, you know, the idea there is if you can, you know, remove the driver, you remove quite a bit of the cost of transportation. And also, you know, if these vehicles are controlled by, uh, are basically, you know, inside a network, then that network can learn, you know, where the demand is, you know, where in a particular city, at what time are people generally calling for rides. So you can start to deploy vehicles uh, very smartly, you know, and very efficiently. Uh, and these vehicles could be utilized, you know, a large part of the day. Um, so that's really the use case for level four and level five, at least initially. And so you'll start to see these vehicles deployed 2020, 2021, mm -hmm. but our view is like in very limited use cases. So maybe it's used to take people from, uh, you know, the airport, you know, arrivals to the rental car center, or, you know, maybe you carve out a a limited area within a city that's heavily mapped uh, so these vehicles uh, kind of know their routes and the vehicles can be deployed within, you know, what they call a geofenced area. So I think limited use, you know, uh, limited numbers in limited areas, you could start to see these vehicles in 2020, 2021. But at Intel and Mobileye, we're looking to develop a system uh, that can really drive everywhere affordably, assertively, because you need to get to point, from point A to point B at least as fast as a human would get you there for the vehicle to really be useful. We're still a few years away from that. Uh, we're thinking, you know, late 2021, 2022, uh, where you'll start to see vehicles that, that can be used in kind of a more broad area and for more broad uses. So it sounds like there's a mix of technology out there and states need to evaluate and think about what are those business cases that are going to work best for them in the near term, the medium term, and the long term? What I've been talking about so far is really the technology path. There's a lot beyond the technology that needs to happen to 
prepare the landscape for successful deployment of these vehicles. Um, and, and so certainly states have a big role to play in that because historically states have um, regulated the way that vehicles are utilized within their states and the way that people are licensed. So states have a big role to play in, you know, understanding, I, I think, primarily, you know, what is the safety level of these vehicles. So states, I, I would suggest, you know, trying to get involved, you know, with companies developing these vehicles to start to understand, um, you know, how the company or how is the technology developer planning to validate the safety of the vehicles. Because in, in that way, you know, the states can understand if there are any risks uh, to their population uh, and kind of when to approve uh, the usage of these vehicles. So I, I think it's important for states to get involved now, even though we're a few years away from deployment. The other side is is testing. So, you know, are you going to allow, uh, you know, fleets of autonomous vehicles to test in your location, you know, how do you sort of do due diligence on, you know, who is the developer that's asking to test? So we've, we've heard from states that are, you know, looking into third parties that would evaluate, um, you know, a submission of like a safety report uh, from the companies to kind of understand how they intend to prove that these vehicles are safe. Uh, to share the road with human-driven vehicles. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that there is, there is a lot for states to be involved in. Yeah, and we were talking earlier in the show about the advancements that are happening within the communications uh, networks that are out there. How do you see that fitting in with the spectrum of development um, of, of different levels of vehicles? Um, what What kinds of things would states need to keep it, an eye out for in terms of that underlying communications network? Our view is that anything, you know, any kind of safety critical information or um, decisions of the vehicle need to happen inside the vehicle because we, we don't believe you can rely on information from the cloud or information from, uh, you know, uh, sensors on the road to make safety critical decisions for the vehicle because you, number one, you know, that, that type of technology, so let's say, you know, sensors in, uh, you know, on the lanes, or the, the, those types of technologies are not going to be everywhere. So you can't create a system that relies on something that's not, that's, uh, not going to be everywhere. Uh, there's also potential that, you know, maybe the, the connection isn't good. And you, if you lose a connection even briefly uh, to information that's critical to the safety of the vehicle, you know, you just can't have that. So, you know, we believe that all of the data processing, the, the information that the car uses to make decisions and to understand its environment, it needs to be processed inside the vehicle through the sensors on the vehicle, so the, the radars, the cameras, the LIDARs. So I would say that uh, states should be careful about not investing in, in technology that's not necessary. I think what is important uh, for states to understand is there's actually data from cameras on vehicles that are driving around that could be helpful to the city. So, you know, we have a technology uh, called road experience management that, you know, the, the cameras that are on kind of the, the normal vehicles that we're, you know, putting on the road today, data from these cameras 
can be extracted to better understand, okay, you know, where are the potholes, where are, you know, down traffic signs or traffic lights that are out, or, you know, what's the, the density of traffic in a certain part of my city. You can use, you know, th- this technology that's going on the road today to create you know, the, with the primary purpose to create safety, uh, it can be used to create, you know, to generate usable data that a city could use. So I think that that's one way cities can really get involved is to, you know, evaluate, number one, you know, if I have a fleet of vehicles that, you know, the city owns, is there value in deploying collision avoidance systems, advanced driver assist systems on those vehicles uh, in order to, you know, lower the risk of collision, lower liability and things like that. And at the same time, is there data that I can, uh, you know, extract from the cameras on those vehicles that, that could help my city? And, and so, you know, there's a lot of aspects to this. We, we don't really believe that you know, cars have to be connected in order to create safe autonomous systems. Um, but on the other end, you know, the, the potential to connect cars to the cloud can actually result in useful data that a city can use to, uh, to, to help their infrastructure and to help monitor, you know, who's using my roads. Thank you, Dan. This has been really helpful helping us understand what's a pretty complicated topic. We do need to wrap up, but I'd like to ask you to leave us with some final thoughts here about how states can stay ahead of the curve. There's a lot of talk about the, you know, the major benefits that, you know, vehicle automation can create for society. You know, number one, um, you know, potentially a massive reduction in, in collisions and fatalities. We believe that eventually you could have a, a thousand times a better safety level of an autonomous vehicle versus a human-driven vehicle. But there's all kinds of, you know, potential impacts to city planning or state planning in terms of, you know, potentially less land used for parking, um, you know, a better uh, flow of traffic. So I, I, we believe in these benefits, but it's important that, you know, as we move along this path towards autonomous vehicles, that it's done in a very safe manner. So I, I really encourage states and cities to, you know, ask questions, to start thinking about, you know, how do we evaluate the developers that are asking um, to test within our state? And then, you know, think about, you know, the consequences of autonomous vehicles uh, for your city in terms of, you know, what can I do to, you know, to understand how these vehicles are going to be used, you know, uh, how they're going to be using our infrastructure. Um, I, I think, you know, getting involved uh, with the technology developers, uh, you know, through conversations or through consortiums um, is really a great way to kind of, you know, be prepared uh, for, for what's going to happen in the future. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate getting your insights and and hearing about the things that are on the road today already that are making us safer and, and some of the ways that we look to be safer uh, going forward. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much.